Well, it's the 4th of July weekend, and we are going to take a sort of hiatus this weekend. I'm not going to be presenting a full show, largely because it's a generally a quiet weekend on websites. For obvious reasons, everybody's getting out and celebrating, at least in the United States. And I don't want a guest to not have the best chance they can of having everybody enjoy their show. So this this week, you're going to enjoy an old show with me. I'm going to talk about it a little bit first and about a few other things. Communion has been republished at last. I have been trying to get it for two years. I It became available to re recover two years ago, and my very astute copyright lawyer immediately set the recovery in motion, and it became final in April. And now there is a beautiful new edition. The paperback is just sumptuous. The Kindle is beautiful. And there is an audio book, the first time ever a full-length, unabridged audio book of communion has even existed, read by me, available on audible.com or on Amazon. You can get it through Amazon. There will be a hardcover available on Amazon. I can only say sooner or later because the system is not particularly fast in setting those things up. The hardcover is finished and we are waiting for copies. So do get the audiobook if you get nothing else. Even if you have read Communion before, you have never heard it read by me. And it's, frankly, it's, it was quite an experience to read. And so it must be quite an experience to, to listen to. I felt it. I felt it all, all over again. I want to also wish you a happy 4th of July. Next week, we're going to feature an interview with Ann Tyler, a very accomplished psychologist who was brought into the experience by Ann Streber, very definitely and very skillfully. And it is a fun, joyous interview. Then the week after that, we're going to be talking to Megan Rose about spirit marriage, which is something I've done and a lot of us do with sometimes without even understanding or knowing what's happening. It is possible to have more than a furtive fleeting link with the spirits around us. Very possible. Megan Rose uh, was a student of Orion Foxwood. Orion's interview is available in the subscriber section. It's from back in, I believe, September of 2017. Gosh, the site has got a lot of stuff on it nowadays. And today, what I want to do is something I've been thinking a lot about the old days. And I guess as one gets older, there are more old days to think about every day. And I was remembering the times when me and Anne and Shirley, Shirley McLean, used to get together at a restaurant up on the Pacific Coast Highway called Jeffrey's. And it has a beautiful deck. And they would seat us, of course, it being Shirley McLean, they sat us in the best seat in the house. 
at right out at the end of the deck overlooking the Pacific where we would talk and have dinner together and talk into the night and I would get to listen to Anne and Shirley talking about the dark and the light and how it is Shirley would say that the dark seeks only to enclose the light and to finally end the disturbance to its peace that is our reality. And Anne, while not exactly disagreeing with Shirley, would defend our reality and say how if it wasn't for the light, the dark could not know itself. And if it wasn't for the dark, the light could not know itself. You know something? We don't understand the physics of light well enough to know why it is that the sky at night doesn't glow uniformly. Why are the stars individual? Is it because they're individual beings, do you suppose? Oh, what a universe it is. Fourth of July. I do hope we have a republic still. I've got my doubts. We can talk about that more in the future. I, I don't do much politics on this show, but a lot is changing, and perhaps we should change a bit with it too. Anyway, I thought it would be fun this time to listen to one of the interviews I did with Shirley McLean. It's a perfectly beautiful interview. And to remember those nights so long ago now, Anne and Shirley and me together, the sun setting over the Pacific, and the dark and the light dancing their silent, endless dance overhead. So thank you for being members of this website, for being listeners if you're not subscribers. I urge you to subscribe if you're not. It's not to get things, it's to support the site and the spirit that's here, because there is a beautiful spirit here. There's a spirit here unlike anything else anywhere in the world. There is no website like it. No place where you get the feelings that you get on unknown country of adventure, of belonging, of wonder, all of that. Now let's listen to Whitley Strieber and Shirley MacLaine. How I wish Anne had participated in this interview, but she didn't. In memory of Anne Strieber, happy fourth, This is Whitley Strieber's Dreamland. Expert hosts like William Henry on Secrets of the Past, Jim Mars on Politics and Conspiracy, Anne Strieber on Matters of the Spirit, and Whitley Strieber on Aliens, UFOs, and who knows what else. And weekly science reporter, Emmy Award winner, Linda Moulton Howe. We say it like it is. We take you deeper, down where the real secrets lie. Dreamland, welcome to the edge of the world. Well, today it is my great pleasure and privilege to be talking to Shirley McLean, whom I believe to be one of the most important people 
in this, it, working in this area at the edge of consciousness and reality in the world today, I think that over the many years that I have followed her work and her efforts to open human minds, I cannot say but that I have been so impressed. I first met Shirley MacLaine, not exactly a two-way meeting, many, many years ago when I sat down to w- watch the movie The Trouble with Harry, and I was a young boy, and suddenly there was the most beautiful and marvelous woman I had ever laid eyes on in my life. <laughs> and I just about collapsed. And it remains to this day that delightful film, one of the pleasures of my life. And it's in great part because you are in it. And uh, how wonderful an effect your career has had on this world ever since. And Shirley has a new book out which is called saging while aging and it is it's it, it it has there's a lightness of being about you and there is a lightness of touch about this title but this is a terribly terribly an extraordinary and important book welcome to dreamland shirley mclean thank you whitley i also have been watching you for years in your in and out of world experiences, and um, long have, have longed to talk to you for some time. So thank you for having me. Well, you know, you were a great friend of John Max also, and he spoke of you from time to time. We had a lot of fun together, and I miss him terribly every day of my life. Uh, he was uh, such a, a blessing, and I thought that we might begin our time together by talking a little bit about your experience with John Mack, and which you refer to, of course, in the book and later on in the story. And then we'll go back to the beginning and begin to work through some of this extraordinary material. But tell us a little bit about your meeting uh, John Mack. Oh, my goodness. I met him, I think, first in L.A., had been following his work, very fascinated with it. Um, Then he came out to my ranch in uh, New Mexico, and we spent many different times um, looking through yeah, no, human consciousness, trying to understand what it meant, the whole idea of expanding one's notion of reality, how the parameters of reality really were too limited in terms of uh, science and the leaders in this world. He was such a loving guy. And I've got to tell you something, Whitley. The day he left for London, um, which was the trip that was, uh, his passing. Yes. He called and he said uh, he was just so disappointed about politics. He didn't know what to do about George W. Uh, he wanted to stop uh, his work with uh, his metaphysics, etc., and he wanted to work against Bush. And we had a long talk about karma and about um, the fact that I believe that we deserve George Bush so that we would understand ourselves better. After all, we didn't somehow work hard enough not to have him there. And then I was, he he was very sweet, seemed to make sense. I didn't want him to give up his work. Then, I don't know if you know this, but after Mac was hit by a drunken driver stepping off a curb in London, some hours later, another man named John Mac was hit by a drunken driver stepping off a curb. Did you know that? No, I did not know that, yeah. Shirley. Tell yeah. us more. Well, I don't know. I Some of my friends in intelligence in England were very interested in that, and uh, 
you know, you go automatically to conspiratorial thoughts. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I just find it unbelievable that uh, two men named John Mack, and both hit by drunk drivers, same day within hours. Well, you know, it worried me at the time because, of course, everyone in this field worries about that, and we've all had periods in our lives when we were uh, oppressed, as shall I say, by people who had some sort of intelligence community element involved in their lives, and uh, I've never been, I never felt directly threatened, but I wouldn't be surprised if that hadn't happened to John Mack, because, you know, we're dealing with something. I, as as I was reading your book, I made a a lot of notes, and one of the notes, which I won't find now that I'm looking for it, of course, mm-hmm. but one of the notes was, it's not, you don't refer to it directly, but it, it, the question of uh, the why of our state, and it, it, it's as if there was some dark force here that was doing something different to us, something that hasn't happened to people in uh, other worlds. And yet, uh, I do you understand what I'm getting at? Do you mean other worlds off this planet? Or yes. Off, um, I don't. I think everyone has been through, and I'm talking other star beings, etc. I think from the people I've talked to have had contact, and, and quite a few, by the way. Um, they seem to have gone through quite a bit of negativity as they search through their own consciousness, just like we are. So what is it that makes the DNA of the human uh, so resonating to fear is is something I find very interesting. Yes, and your discussion of DNA in the book is amazing. And why, why don't you tell us a little bit about the what you learned about the relationship between emotional life and DNA and the way the two are connected? Well, um, let me see where to start. I think that we are alive in the third dimensional um, frequency, as we say, in order to challenge our passions. I think we are experiencing life in order to overcome the emotionality of passion. That means fear, excessive anger. It can even mean besotted love, etc. so that there is then more of a balance achieved after one has a control over these basically warring passions. Now, I'm fascinated with why we have those. And, of course, I've read all of Sitchin and Von Ward and um, Bromley. Have you read them, too? Oh, yes, and I know Sitchin. I'm going to ask you later about Bromley as well, which is a fascinating subject all in and of itself. Yeah. I know Zachariah very well. Just was with him in New York last week. His wife died. Did you know that? Yes, I did know, and I've been very worried about him for that reason. I don't know him as well as you do. How is he doing? He is not doing well. He is absolutely despondent. Oh, I'm uh, so sorry, folks. Yeah, this truly worries me because he's one of the great resident geniuses on the planet. Yes, he certainly is. I would agree with you there. Yeah, he really is something. But... Of course, in studying them and their translations of the uh, Sumerian cuneiform tablets, uh, it seems that we were visited some millions of years ago by what they are translating the name to be Anunnaki from yes. the 
planet Nibiru, you've probably talked about this quite often, but I find this so fascinating when one then rereads the Bible because I had not realized that the name Elohim is not a singular description. It's plural. So Elohim means gods, not God. Yes, that's right. It does. And when you look at the gods did this or that, the gods demanded this or that, the gods wrote this or that, I wonder now, who are these plural beings? So it made sense to me that it could possibly have been those that actually genetically, um, let's say, coded us and seeded us, um, which is what these Sumerian cuneiform tablets are basically saying. They wanted to populate this planet for workers, etc., because of what they needed here in terms of minerals and so forth. I saw all that activity, of course, when I was in Peru, the millions of these little ships darting across the sky every night and apparently landing and mining. Uh, what they were mining, I was told, was gold and other minerals. And, of course, there were scientists and all kinds of astronomers, etc., up in Peru. I was around 18,000 feet up. And they were taking notes and looking at uh, the phenomenon every night. It wasn't like it was one. It was every night. So it made sense to me that there are beings that are here for many, many reasons. Not to divert, but I I really think that in a democracy, if you have an open and clear channel with the government and the people, particularly with events like the presence of star beings, that uh, we know much more about ourselves if they will be honest with us. Now, let me say that I don't, I don't want to chastise military intelligence or NSA or wherever this is held in deep cover, because I do think, and from some of my contacts, I think it's true, that they are waiting to see how we humans deal with these uh, disclosure issues. I mean, some of us working in the private sector are being a little bit more open and uh, challenging than those in intelligence. and. I'm worried about what Paul Hellyer is worried about. He's the uh, ex-defense minister of Canada. Right. He's extremely worried about this weaponization of space and uh, basically the suspension, therefore, of the military-industrial complex. So all of their presence and the way we treat their presence and uh, the way we secretize their presence has got to do with the issues that we hold most dear here. And I would say one of the issues most dear is what uh, Eisenhower warned us against, and that's the military-industrial complex. Now, I've gotten exactly. off your question, haven't I? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Uh, I think it's it, it, your, 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 your segues are wonderful, and they. I think, folks, you can hear the, you know, Shirley deals, I think, really for the first time in great detail with her knowledge, uh, her behind-the-scenes knowledge of the whole UFO phenomenon in this book, In Saging While Aging, which is available in bookstores everywhere. And Shirley's website, of course, is shirleymclean.com. And uh, you can you can get this book, and you certainly should, because this book is not only a spiritual journey, it is a journey through 
many levels of fact that we know little about. And we're going to, when we come back, we're going to start by talking about Ronald Reagan's close encounter of the third kind. We'll be right back. Obviously, we're having some sound problems. Our audio engineer is telling me that they are unrecoverable, but at least only my voice is involved, not Shirley's. I do apologize to all of our listeners for this unpleasant inconvenience. I'm very sorry it happened. I'd also like to take this opportunity to inform you subscribers that the UnknownCountry.com Christmas store is open for business. And in addition to your other discounts and coupons, you get a 10% discount for shopping in this particular category, in the Christmas store category. There's a lot of wonderful William Henry stuff in there. The 2008 Crop Circle calendar is there. The path and the key are there. All of our best stuff, really. So do shop the UnknownCountry.com Christmas store. This is Splitley Streber. I'm talking to Shirley McLean about her new book, Saging While Aging. Her website, ShirleyMcLean.com. Don't miss this book. If you don't get another book this year, it should certainly be this one because not only is it an extraordinary spiritual journey built around a move into a new home and, and very symbolically, I think, for a lot of different reasons, it delves into the UFO phenomenon as really nobody else I don't think ever has because of her wide-ranging knowledge and the many, many people uh, of of experience and expertise that she's met in this field. Shirley, why don't you tell us now what happened to Ronald Reagan? Now, I got this, as I say in the book, not from R- Ronald Reagan, although he spoke to many people about it who also often... Um, was part of their discourse at dinner parties, but it was told to me by Lucille Ball, and this is what she said. There was a surprise birthday party for Ronnie and Nancy at Helen and uh, Almond Deutsch's house. Those were, they were old kind of Hollywood society mainstay out here, very beloved and popular people. And Ronnie and Nancy were late, hours late. And Lucy and everyone was getting uh, upset. Where could they be? Had something happened? When finally they came in, and Lucy said, Ronnie took me in one room, and Nancy took others in the other room, and they told us the following. They were going along Mulholland Drive, uh, and they were stopped by a UFO craft. The craft landed. Uh, a ladder came out. A being came out, spoke to him telepathically, and told him, to get out of show business and to go into politics in a way that was so moving to his heart. So he didn't just hear it in his head, he heard it in his heart. And Lucy said, I am so glad uh, to tell you this because I think he must have been crazy. She didn't know who she was talking to when she, you know, told me this story. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, and she said, this is what he said and this is what Nancy said. And soon after that, he stopped with his uh, already B career instead of A-list career and went into into speeches for General Electric, and then we know the story from there. Yes. But he often spoke, Whitley, about the, his understanding of star beings. I remember when he was debating Walter Mondale, he brought it up. So it's not... I, I don't know why... The other night when uh, they asked Dennis Kucinich about the UFO he saw on my deck in my home in um, Seattle when I lived up there, why did the audience laugh and titter when he said, yes, I saw that? 
Why did they do that? And why, why this sense of, it's not humiliation, but it's tittering out of what? Uh, out of fear. Well. Or something, or, or arrogance maybe? I don't, I'm not getting in the polls that they've done that the public is fearful of this. Um, I think they're a little fearful that the government but doesn't tell the truth, but they're not fearful of this. I so. think that there are certain elements that are specifically the scientific and even more than that, the intellectual community, which, of course, they bleed over into one another mm-hmm. because it is saying to them that they are not a- a- at the top of the food chain. In other words, that they do not, in fact, uh know everything they not they are not the leading edge that's the leading edge is far ahead of them you know i was uh talking once to rusty schweikert one of the astronauts and uh, he hadn't had any experiences himself but he was pretty interested in and i was he was asking me to describe the grays and some of the things that had happened and he finally said you know i said to him he, he said uh, he knew some other astronauts who have had he referred to gordon cooper in fact and um he said, but you know what? The problem I have with this is this. I don't want the road to Mars, the path to Mars to be well-worn by somebody else. I, I would rather just not have them in my life than know that I was going, that our, our whole exploration of the universe was simply going into somebody else's backyard. What on earth is that psychology? I don't know. I, 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 it was mystifying to me, and I thought to myself, the greatest adventure that we can have, adventure, an adventure you have touched, that I have touched, and so many other people have had the good luck to touch in one way or another, is this adventure of coming into contact with other minds, some of which are very much like ours, like the greys, and others are higher Minds yeah, now all that's very fascinating. Very. But probably they they titter, I guess. Maybe this politics of disclosure would change the very nature of how we define ourselves. I mean, scientifically, religiously, psychologically, philosophically, even with, you know, all of our other problems on Earth. Um, well, it's time to acknowledge their presence. First of all, we could learn something, it seems to me. Um and I think there's concrete evidence that the public wants to know. So this disclosure would not foment fear or hysteria. No. But I think the fear of a dishonest government is what exists now. Well, yeah. And, you know, years ago I met a, an old socialist called Norman Thomas. Oh, uh, he was great. Huh? He was something else. And he said to me when I, I was – my father and my uncle – uh, were both involved in one way or another in military intelligence during my, the war, and it was my uncle, my father's brother's entire career, uh, which is uh, which uh, refers I'll refer to briefly later, in uh, perhaps in terms of his connection to the Roswell incident, mm-hmm. when we talk about your thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. But um, it, the uh, the uh, it, what Norman Thomas said was this: he said, "Where the secrets start." The Republic stops. Yeah. And that is so true. And the less we know, the more, the less we are able to vote and think intelligently about our Republic. And there has been such a dumbing down mm-hmm. 
uh, like the tittering at Dennis Kucinich is so stupid and silly and 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 uh, shallow. I think if you say you live in a democracy, then the one thing you must respect above all else is each human being's freedom to talk to each other. And when we are presented out of some kind of um, fear of being ridiculed, to talk to each other, that's how we learn. We kind of know the governments don't tell us the truth. We kind of know that, and that is really a shame. But if somehow their tactic is to ridicule with a with this uh, kind of curtain of uh, of uh, fun making about yes. it, then you, then we can't really we can't succeed as a as a democracy. That isn't going to happen. No, you mentioned in the book the Pleiadians call us their younger brothers and say that if we cannot solve our problems brought on brought on by the imbalance of our technological advances and our ideological and religious differences, we will likely not be as fortunate as they because we presently have no escape routes and are not prepared for this dilemma. This surely is an extraordinary and powerful statement, obviously. Mm-hmm. Could you expand on exactly what you mean here? That the they are looking for us to find our own truth. Uh, they also understand our DNA better than we do. So if we are not persistent in looking to the within truth of all of us and the within truth of our governments and leaders, then we can't uh, possibly become um, participatory civilization in the world. I mean, we're moving toward a world culture, and we are, we're, of course, not there yet, but we also have to learn to move towards a cosmic culture. Yes. And um, all our DNA is connected to the divine, and I think every star being species, including the greys, by the way, Whitley, and we could talk about that if you want to, that that they're all looking for what is the divine, what is God, yes. what is that source. I mean, my feeling about our fear of the greys is that they have this collective mentality that doesn't that doesn't respect the individuation of human souls. And that's not so, of course, of the Pleiadian and the Andromedan and some of the others. But no. we should be talking about these different species that exist rather than are they really real? <laughs> Well, exactly. We and we should because, well, like in my own case, I started out getting roughed up by the Greys in the usual way, mm-hmm. and uh, 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 it took me in about three, two or three months, two and a half months, to realize that it had really happened, and that also it wasn't a crime. In other words, that it, or perhaps it was on some level, but it wasn't a crime perpetrated by people, which is what the psychiatrist who interviewed me and hypnotized me at first thought. Mm-hmm. We both did, uh, and that I had these strange images in my head because they might have been wearing masks or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had just written, published a very controversial book called War Day, which had really very much annoyed Brent Scowcroft and, uh, because it had t- put, given the lie to a whole strategy that they were planning to 
to sort of create a destabilization between us and Russia. But that's a whole complicated story. I won't even get into it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that maybe they had done something, that they had drugged me up and then done something to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it became clear that this was not the case, that these beings were quite real. And I began going out into the woods, and 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 indeed they responded to that, I think largely because there's so few people, other people had ever done it. Mm-hmm. You know, mostly when you realize you've been abducted, you keep your mouth shut and you, you know, lock the doors and windows and hope to hell they don't come back. Yeah, but this is what's wrong. And the, pli- right. the pilots who say that they've seen these crafts are fired if they talk about it. This just won't do in a democratic society. No, it won't. And, and in my case with the Greys, over time, I, you know, I got, I had 11 years of experience with the Greys that I would not trade for anything. Mm-hmm. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not pleasant, but I'm not very pleasant either. So we fit very well together. <laughs> well, tell me something, Whitley. Do you think that the unpleasantness that you see in yourself was uh, reflected and actually created by them to reflect back to you? Uh, in, no, not at all. When I say not unpleasant, I'm a very tough-minded guy. I, I'm a person who, you know, I was a real totally rock-ribbed skeptic before this happened sure, to me. Sure, sure. And uh, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not the kind of person uh, who is going to, to really buy into anything so odd, especially because I was writing horror novels and suddenly a horror novel drags me out of my world. house in the middle of the night. I mean, what am I expected to believe? Yeah. So, but I don't mean... I but don't you mean also that, had your adventure in fear. You had... Which yeah. is something I think we would all like to clear up, and you have, haven't you? Absolutely, I have had a journey through fear, and uh, going into the woods, and, and, and especially in the first year or so, was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I was, and I wrote a lot about fear. And you mentioned in your book that you think it's wrong for people to just to uh, to uh, indulge, as it were. Uh, to use fear as a kind of entertainment in connection with this or anything, and you're quite right. I don't think I ever did that because I, what I was trying to do was to work through the fear mm-hmm. and, and to help others, presumably, who were experiencing the same thing, work through it too. Because... Yeah, I, I do take, of course, exception to the studio heads and the uh, network people who put uh, invasion and some of these things about UFOs that promulgate the of fear. Of course. I take them to task. On the other hand... They, um, the audiences get a chance to try their sense of fear on. And that could be the lesson that, uh, is occurring. That the sense of what do you think if this was real and it scares the hell out of you, 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 you have a rehearsal with the fear. Whitley, these guys are going to land. I mean, they're going hey, to land. I come, agree with you, Shirley. No doubt. So now we've got to get prepared and maybe, all right, so we all, in the UFO research community say this is terrible that they're promulgating fear in these entertainment shows. On the other hand, maybe that's a preparation. Shirley McLean's new book, Saging While Aging, available in bookstores everywhere. A tremendous achievement. Uh, Shirley, not only do we learn a lot about her inner journey and her inner life 
it, it contains some of the most amazing material and new material regarding the UFO and close encounter phenomenons that I have ever read. Her website, ShirleyMcLean.com. Don't miss it. Shirley, before we left the air, we were talking a little bit about fear and then about the possibility that this thing is going to open up in some mm-hmm. very new and extraordinary ways. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about what exactly you meant then and what do you think might happen? Well, I I just don't think we humans are doing a very good job um, with getting along together and uh, acting as one. So if it continues as it seems to be continuing, we're going to need help. Now, I've always been interested in do they feel that interference is uh, karmically bad. They've been fooled not to karmically interfere. and But that has some subheadings. Because what I'm learning is they will not interfere if we destroy ourselves with biochemicals. If we get to the point where it looks like nuclear conflagration, I'm getting that they will present themselves and, and prevent it. You know, I had such an interesting communication from the Greys about nuclear weapons and their concern about nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. which was that these weapons don't just destroy things in the physical world, but they bleed over into other dimensions as well. In other words, they affect affect the universe in ways that we don't yet understand. I, I was told somehow that they actually burn the soul. That they shatter the soul, exactly. Shatter the soul, so that all these beings from different worlds all over the cosmos, they could, without having done anything, experience soul shattering because of our ignorance. Exactly. They could, exactly, they could suffer because of our ignorance and because we have happened upon a technology that is far far beyond our ability to understand and control it. And as we sit here talking, we're looking, we're watching the deterioration, the steady, almost inevitable deterioration of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And they have nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And the, the very worst possible scenario seems about to unfold. No. And, and, you know, I was in India soon after partition, Whitley, you know, when the Muslims were told to go uh west which is uh Pakistan and east which is Bangladesh and look at look at what's happening to both of those eastern and western muslim countries that that basically gandhi agreed the muslims have to get out and make uh, india a hindu place i um, i think we're seeing the natural karma of that of that decision of that decision yes yeah and i'm, it- and I'm just wondering what is our is our human nature basically violent and and is it because we saw our gods as violent? Did you know that ninety percent of the time on earth has been spent on war and seven percent of all the time on earth has been devoted to peace well you said you you mentioned in the book the relationship between the surah uh between Deuteronomy 13, yes. verses 7 to 11, and the Quran, Surah 9.73, both of which basically say 
everybody who doesn't believe in me should be killed. Yeah. Now, are these gods real? And if that's the case, goodness knows. Let's hope they don't come back. Well, this is the point, isn't it? That if we were seated by people who had not still um, quelled their own mm. inner violence, who were still warring with each other, and they are the gods that perhaps seated us, then we have to really look at the divinity in ourselves even more scrutinously because that's the only thing that's going to save us. And this is where this discussion comes down to God. And that's why we have a, an opinion about fear and about our enemies that revolve around religion instead of revolving around the expanding of our own consciousness. I mean, we would be able to transcend our conflict, really, if we understood that we are spiritually and scientifically interconnected. You know, Shirley, I think you've said something so important there in, in just those few words that we are revolving around these religions instead of around the expanding of our own consciousnesses. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the way the world is, the people listening to this radio program right now are, for the most part, People who have gone kind of beyond the religious paradigm. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I, I took this off the air, off the radio, is that, it, and, and put it just on the internet where it now has a gigantic listenership bigger than it ever had on the, on the airways with the difference that people with these religious persuasions that kind of, kind of push away their chance to evolve mm -hmm. aren't here anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's a very pure audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are, and 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 yet we always have these dichotomies. Mm -hmm. We now have two religions which are fighting each other to the death, and I think are going to quite possibly blow the whole world up. Well, later. it could be, but you know, you never know how much, like Eleanor Roosevelt said, just light that candle instead of cursing the darkness. And we have become very familiar with the feeling of spiritual separation, you know, separation of other members of the human race, separation from ourselves, separation from God. My God, we've agreed, really, that separation is natural. So how can separation, I'm asking, from the divine source be natural? But because of that belief, because we believe that we are sinners and have separated from the divine, we've defined ourselves on a self-destructive level. We are killing each other and ourselves, because we believe that it's our natural human nature to fight, to fight over territory, country, and God. <laughs> yes, and and yet it doesn't, I, I wonder about that, because it, is, it, it really comes down to illusion, I think, mm -hmm. that, that, that we are captured in these illusions that these stories, the, the stories of the gods of the Hindus, or the stories of Allah, or the stories of of uh, Yahweh and Jesus must be believed. And if 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 somebody doesn't believe these stories, they need to be killed. How strange! Well, yeah, it is strange because uh, everybody thinks their stories are the best. But the, yeah, and yet it, it isn't. It it simply is not 
not true. You know, you mentioned, and I want to get back to the UFO. You know, I'm, I'm sort of ranging around because I was so excited at some points in reading this book, I had to get up and pace the floor. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Thank you for getting it, Whitley. Thank oh, you. I, I, yeah, I, I did get it. But, you know, Shirley was living in Arlington, Virginia in 1952 when across the Potomac in Washington, D.C., uh, there was the most remarkable UFO event possibly in history that lasted a few days, and it was an extraordinary event. And we're going to talk to her about this in just a moment when we get back. This is Whitley Strieber. I'm talking with Shirley McLean, her new book, Saging While Aging, a wonderful lightness of being in this book. It will energize you. It will lift you up, and it will also inform you in ways about the close encounter experience, about the UFO phenomenon, about your health, about the nature of medical practice. Now, it is a small book physically with a light blue cover, clouds, a smiling picture of Shirley on the, on the cover, but this is a big, big big books folks i get it i got it immediately upon reading it and and it is something incredible by a very very wise human being i'm very excited about it okay let's go back now to arlington virginia in 1952 and tell us a little bit about what happened in washington right i live uh, grew up in arlington after we moved uh, up there from richmond it was July 19th. I was 18. I had just come back from New York to spend uh, the summer there with my mom and dad. And um, I heard all the flaps going on, on television, on radio. People were kind of yelling at each other, what is it? They were frightened, but they just wanted to know, what is it that is in the sky over the Capitol and over the White House? Well, apparently... Nobody was organized enough to uh, explain what it was. I don't know where it is in the book that I have the explanation they finally gave. It was, you know, like something out of um, a double. It's a La La Land explanation. Actually, it, it it reads like something written by a Hollywood science fiction writer on of, yeah. speed. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, finally the next morning, Truman directed General Samford um, from the Pentagon to get on the air. I still have the kinescope of this, by the way, and in which he said, what appeared over the Capitol and over the White House, we don't know what these crafts are. They are not Russian, and they are not ours. So, And that was the end of it. There had been front page that night at the evening on the Evening Star. I think that was the name of the paper in Washington. But yes. the Washington Post had nothing the next morning, and it disappeared, Whitley. I mean, nobody wrote it. I mean, it was sort of like you had been dreaming that it didn't really happen because intelligence said, we're not going to discuss it. And yet, you know, I had, I asked, during the time I was having sort of contact with the visitors, and I hasten to add that, I, I you know, they never spoke, it just spoke a few words to me in open language, uh, but I did have, an ability at one point to interact with them in ways that I still haven't been able to quite put into words. But one thing I think I learned from them was that the reason that this happened like this was that we could not communicate with them. In other words, 
the communication that I was having with them was a type of communication they had been expecting from the Air Force and from Washington, mm-hmm. and they didn't get it, mm-hmm. and so they quit. And when they quit, then these people uh, who were so frightened and so unwilling to open the door to this simply dropped it and let it go. Well, I wonder if this was a reaction to the supposed meeting that Eisenhower had in 51 and 51 or earlier in well, the tell, year. Tell us a little bit about that meeting, if you will, and the material in this book about that meeting, by the way, folks. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's quite documented. Do you remember what page? I want to make this clear. Oh, here it is. Eisenhower. It was after this, actually. It was February 17th in uh, 1954. You're right. You're right. Hmm. Anyway, uh, he had gone to Palm Springs for a winter holiday, so to speak. And on the evening of Saturday, February 20th, he disappeared. When uh, members of the press learned that the president was not where he should be, rumors ran rampant that he had either died or was seriously ill. Now, there is circumstantial and testimonial evidence that President Eisenhower was at Murak Airfield, later named Edwards Air Force Base. There are a number of sources alleging a meeting between Eisenhower and star beings that constituted a formal first contact event. These sources are based on testimonies of military intelligence officers who witnessed the event, who read classified documents, saw films, or learned from their insider contacts of such a meeting. These testimonies describe what appear to have been two separate sets of meetings involving different star being groups who either met with the president and or with Eisenhower administration officials over a short period of time. Reportedly, the first of these meetings did not lead to an agreement, and the star beings were rejected. It said that they offered advanced, space travel technology under conditions that the Americans disband their nuclear capabilities. Eisenhower refused. A second meeting did culminate in an agreement which has apparently been the basis of subsequent secret interactions with ET races involved in the treaty that was signed. There is some discrepancy in the sequence of meetings and and where they were held, but all who have spoken out agree that a first contact meeting involving President Eisenhower did occur, and that the first of these meetings occurred during February 1954 visit to Edwards Air Force Base. Now, I, he, I go on with my... See, a lot of these guys that I know that took security oaths, Whitley, are now speaking out. You know, they yes. just think we can't keep this in good conscience any longer. So, yeah, And you, you point out, by the way, in the book, why so many do not speak out because of the seriousness of this threat that these oaths contain, folks. Remember that these are people who, if they say the wrong thing, can be put in Leavenworth without a trial and without any explanation to anyone, essentially for the rest of their lives, for 20 years in any case. Yeah, it is, it is outside uh, the Constitution. Any encounter with entities known to be of ET origin is to be considered to be a matter of national security and therefore classified top secret. This was leaked to me by a military intelligence guy. Right. Under no circumstances is the general public or the public or the press to learn of the existence of these entities. The official government policy is that such creatures do not exist and that no agency of the federal government is now engaged in any study of extraterrestrials or their artifacts. 
Any deviation from this stated policy is absolutely forbidden. And yet my own uncle, Colonel Edward Strieber, told me in 1989 that he had helped work on the reassembly of the debris from Roswell at Wright Field, and his commanding officer, General Arthur Exon, said to me, and I quote, everyone from Truman on down knew what we had found was not of this world within 24 hours of our finding it. Sure. Sure. Exactly. And that's when you've got Philip Corso's stuff. He was Eisenhower's national security advisor. And, and Philip, what a wonderful man. And Shirley, you're just, I'm so glad that you met him because the things you say about him in here ring so wonderfully true. What is your impression of Phil Corso? I didn't meet Phil. Oh, I thought you did. I'm no, sorry. I, I won across the sun. Ah, yes. Yeah, another but, remarkable man. But, yes. But Phil himself, since I met him and spent many hours with him, was it, was, an entirely sincere human being. Oh, I think so. Oh, and absolutely. I thought it took a lot of courage to write about this in his Roswell book because, my God, he was the national security advisor and took a security oath like and no, like no other. <laughs> and I, was, I, I was also interested in Dr. Michael Wolfe. Yeah, uh, I was just going to bring him up. Did you have you met him? No, I've just. Uh, I was careful not to not to meet a lot of these, I, because I didn't want to be influenced by what I felt about them. Well, your your comments about Michael Wolff in this in your book are fascinating. Why don't you expand a little bit about your impressions of what he has said? Yeah, he said that um, first of all, he had membership in the New York Academy of Sciences and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He had an MD from McGill in Montreal. Um, from Caltech in computer science and theoretical physics, a Ph.D. from MIT, chancellor of the New England Institute for Advanced Research. So the guy had impeccable credentials. There's just no question about that. And and he goes on to talk, according to Michael, there were several species of greys that he worked with. And he claims that uh, they were the tall beings from Betel Geese, you know, from Zeta Reticulum, right? the Orion Star constellation. The tall greys were said to be the overseers of the short greys. That's probably who you were with. Would you, would well, you? I was with tall greys, short greys, and these other little blue, like, people that were it were like um, sort of dwarf-like. But the, basically the ones I ended up with over the 11 years was, the, for the most part, the tall greys. Mm-hmm. Well, he went on to say that the Greys have a positive intention and uh, that their intentions had basically been hijacked by rogue elements in the U.S. military and that the tall Greys were known to be the ambassadors of Orion and had agreements with U.S. Air Force generals. It was the job of the tall Greys to hold the short Greys in line. Now, when you say hold in line, what do you mean? Well, I don't really, never met a short gray, so don't know, but apparently um, they could be more more destructive than the tall grays. The tall grays were uh, more diplomatic, didn't you find the, the that? The tall grays seemed to me to be very, very highly individualized, even more individualized than we are. Mm-hmm. But the short grays are something, they're so strange, they're something so different from us that I can't really characterize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they, and they would be more apt to be uh, more collectivized, correct? Well, I I don't know because I I never was able to 
get that close to them. I, I can't tell you. I can only tell you what we would see at the cabin. And I, I'll sum it up. Uh, Raven Dana, one of the women who saw, who enca- had an encounter with one of the short grays at the cabin. I'll, in fact, I'll just go through this whole story very quickly. She said when it first came into the room, she said, I thought it was a little animal. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a raccoon. And this was typical of when people had encounters with them at the cabin because what you don't expect is that if there is absolutely no cultural contact at all, you think immediately it's an animal. That's your first thought. Yeah, because we do have cultural contact with animals, so that's the only thing we could lead to. But, but yeah, exactly. But 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 it's like there's a tremendous gulf, and but then suddenly it's like being you're in the presence of an animal that is smarter than you are. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel, I didn't have enough relationship with them, that uh, with the short grays to say that I would say that they had a collective personality or not. But with the tall grays, the passions, the intensity was absolutely volcanic. I, 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 how they have remained as patient as they have and stayed in the background here like they have, I don't know. It, they must have a tremendous self-discipline. Uh, we are going to take a break, and Dreamland will be right back in just a moment. And thus ends our discussion with Shirley McLean. Next up, we had Linda Moulton Howe talking about the mysterious space force that became known as the Breakaway Civilization, uh, popularized by Richard Dolan. We still don't have any certain information about whether or not such a thing exists. I have to admit that I personally have my doubts, but you never know these days what might be gotten up to behind the scenes. Sometimes I think that behind the scenes might be much bigger than what we see and think of as the whole world. A few years ago, British citizen Gary McKinnon reported that he had seen some very strange material on a NASA website suggesting that there might be fleets of spacecraft out in outer space manned by human beings about which we know nothing. Well, now Linda Moulton Howe's latest report suggests that something very like this could be true. Just listen as she tells us about a possible secret military astronaut program with incredible implications. Linda Moulton Howe's fabulous website, earthfiles.com. Don't miss a single day. If you miss earthfiles.com, you're missing out on what is really happening in this world. Here she is from Albuquerque, Linda Moulton Howe. Thank you, Whitley. Well, since reporting recently on Dreamland and Earthfiles about an alleged secret American space program that parallels the public NASA one, I have received many supportive emails. Very valuable correspondence came from Richard Souter, Ph.D. in political science and author of three books, Underground Bases and Tunnels, What is the Government Trying to Hide, Kundalini Tales, and Underwater and Underground Bases. One of Richard Souter's important discoveries is a New York Times article by reporter William Broad that headlined, quote, 
military secret Star Trek is over. Billions wasted on complex and shuttle, unquote. Well, that was published on August 7, 1989, 18 years ago. And here are the lead sentences, quote, The Defense Department is dismantling a secretive coast-to-coast space complex that cost at least $5 billion and was intended to operate in collaboration with the civilian space shuttle. Over the last three years, the Department has mothballed a $3.3 billion spaceport in California and scrapped a sprawling control center in Colorado. Last year, it disbanded a secret cadre of 32 astronauts based in Los Angeles, unquote. This week, I talk with Richard Souter about what convinces him there is a secret military space program in spite of their denials and this New York Times report of disbanding one, and that it is separate from the civilian and public NASA program. Let me start with one of the most interesting conversations I've had in many years that I had earlier this year. I talked face-to-face with a career alphabet soup research physicist who worked for Project Blue Book back in the 1960s. He's not one of the publicly known Project Blue Book scientists, but he did work out of Wright-Patterson at the time. And he told me that back in the 1960s, the U.S. Air Force had two UFOs, what he called UFOs, that they would fly right out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He said they would open the hangar doors in the middle of the night and fly them right out of the hangars at full bore. One he described as a flying Studebaker, somewhat resembling the well-known vintage automobile of that name. The other he alluded to as a huge spherical object. He didn't say whether these were of alien origin or reverse engineered technology, but over the years I've gotten many indications from a variety of sources that the U.S. military has its own UFOs, and this is just one more datum from me pointing in the direction of a decade-long military program of deep deceit and thoroughgoing lies about the true involvement of U.S. military agencies in secret UFO and space technology and projects. In my view, it is highly likely that there are multiple secret, classified, tightly compartmentalized UFO and space programs. Not a secret program, Linda, mind you, but programs, plural, and that the U.S. military and NASA have been lying through their teeth to the American people about all of this Mm -hmm. since at least the World War II era, if not before. Now, out in Hellendale, California, Lockheed has an underground facility where they have tested a lot of their aerospace stealth technology over the years. Superficially, if you look at this place from the air, it looks like an airstrip with big radar dishes, but underground. They have a sophisticated arrangement where they can raise huge pylons up from underground with whatever they wish to test on top, and then they beam electromagnetic radiation at these things to test their radar signatures. In my book, Underground Bases and Tunnels, I actually have two photographs of an unorthodox sort of disc-shaped object mounted on one of these pylons, 
at the Lockheed Hellendale Test Facility in California. These photos were passed to me by a fellow researcher who flew over the site one day and had the good luck to catch one of these tests underway and photograph it in progress. That would have been back in the early 90s. The object on the pylon is rather UFO-like in appearance. My best guess is that it looks UFO-like precisely because it is a UFO-like technology that Lockheed was working on. In my opinion, what we see in those photos is only one example of some of the sorts of technologies that the military-industrial complex is working on and has been working on and keeps mostly hidden from public view. Do you think that the secret space program in the 1950s by the United States was secret because we were trying to cope with an extraterrestrial presence? I think that's one possible source of secrecy. Another source of secrecy was the Cold War. I believe that it is instructive to look at the antecedents of NASA and the American manned space program, starting all the way back in the immediate post-World War II era and continuing up into the 1950s and 1960s. If you recall, under Project Paperclip, the American military and government brought over a lot of Nazi scientists and engineers to work on a number of projects, prominent among which was the space program. Werner von Braun, for example, brought over a team of more than 100 Nazi scientists and engineers, and they went out, first of all, to Fort Bliss in West Texas, and soon after to the U.S. Army's White Sands Missile Range in southern New Mexico. The Army at the same time brought over as many V-2s as it could recover from occupied Nazi Germany. And von Braun and his crew spent several years doing scores of test launches of V-2s from launch complex number 33 at White Sands. Later, they left White Sands and went to the Army's Redstone Arsenal in northern Alabama. The reason why I brought up the extraterrestrial question is that it is now pretty well documented that at White Sands, during Project Paperclip experimentation with the V-2 yes. rockets, there were white or silver disks that were interacting with launches and causing problems. Yeah, that's correct. There's some information to indicate that Von Brown and perhaps others of his team were brought in on the Roswell crash to consult on that. In 47. So it's entirely plausible to me that Von Brown, the ex-Nazis at White Sands, had some involvement with the extraterrestrial question beginning all the way back in the immediate post-World War II period. Von Brown and his crew then left White Sands and went over to the Army's Redstone Arsenal in northern Alabama, where they continued to perfect ballistic missile technology, both for the military and also for the burgeoning NASA manned space program. Fronter von Brown's boss at Panamunda, where the Nazis fired the V-2s and V-1 rockets during World War II, SS General Walter Dornberger also was brought over to the United States under Project Paperclip, and Dornberger brought with him the plans for the next generation of chemical rocket technology that the Nazis were working on at the close of the war, and this was the boost glide technology first proposed by Eugen Sanger before the war. Mm -hmm. And Dornberger was working on the A-4 with the A-9 and A-10 to come, with which the Nazis hoped to bomb the mainland United States. 
Dornberger therefore brought along all of the R&D blueprints and technical specifications for these projects, and they proved to be the forerunner, ultimately, of the space shuttle coming down to our time. Now, when Dornberger arrived, he was farmed out to the Bell Corporation in upstate New York, and there he helped develop and design the Air Force's Dinosaur Space Plane Project, which was the forerunner of our space shuttle. But this was the original manned space shuttle program, which was developed during the 1950s by the Air Force. And the Air Force put a lot of money into developing Dinosaur, for which they planned to use Titan boosters. They were going to use the Titan boosters to put this into orbit. Subsequently, the Titans were used to put the Gemini spacecraft into orbit. But originally, they wanted to use the Titans to put these dinosaur manned space planes into orbit. In the dinosaur program, one of the first selected astronauts to fly dinosaur was Neil Armstrong. That's true. Neil Armstrong, back in the 1950s, was involved not only with the dinosaur program and continuing up until 1962, but he was also a research pilot flying for NACA, flying the X-1 and X-15. The Air Force publicly announced that they ended the dinosaur program later in the 1960s and said that they never put astronauts into orbit. But, Linda, I am skeptical. I believe it is possible that the program was simply renamed Mm -hmm. and had the same or very similar hardware following along the lines of what dinosaur developed was used for clandestine space program. In other words, the Air Force could say, well, dinosaur never flew, and that could be literally true, but really not substantively true if they just renamed the program. There have been other leaks from physicists who have said that we already went to the moon and have been to Mars in a secret space program. I don't disbelieve that. I think it's entirely possible and it's good evidence that there was a follow-on secret space shuttle program run by the United States Air Force. In August 1989, the New York Times reported that the United States Air Force was disbanding a previously unknown secret cadre of 32 secret military astronauts based in Los Angeles who were associated with a parallel multi-billion dollar space shuttle program that the Air Force was running out of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. This story by veteran New York Times reporter William Broad set out that the Air Force was abandoning a major space control center in Colorado and a $3.3 billion, according to the Air Force, never used spaceport at Vandenberg Air Force Base. Essentially, the thrust of the story was that the U.S. Air Force spent billions of dollars on a secret 32-man astronaut corps and a secret spaceport and launch control center and never used any of it. I simply do not believe this account as put forth by the Air Force. Mm -hmm. I believe, in fact, that the opposite is likely to be true and that the United States military does have and has had not one but very likely multiple secret space programs using both conventional aerospace technologies and also unconventional technologies such as electrogravitic and nuclear propulsion modes. I believe it is highly possible that the Air Force has put up its own space shuttles, perhaps using dinosaur-style technology and very likely using these facilities at Vandenberg Air Force Base that they told us back in the late 1980s that they lavished billions of dollars on and never used Linda. I think 
that's a stretch. The cover here to try to put space between the public and the media and the facts of a space program would be to generate a story that would be covered by the New York Times, the newspaper of record, that, yes, there was a secret program, but it has been entirely disbanded. That is one of the best ways to cover up a secret. Well, sure it is, but that puzzling thing about that is this story surfaced one time and one time only in the mainstream news cycle and disappeared, never to be seen again, never to be heard from again. So I'm strongly suspicious of the Air Force's line on this. Now, getting back to Neil Armstrong, he was not in the first group of NASA astronauts. He was in the second group of NASA astronauts. So where did he come from? Well, he came through a different background than many of the other astronauts. He was a military pilot and flew combat missions in Korea. But then he ended up working for NACA, which was the forerunner to NASA in the 1950s, and he was a research pilot for NACA flying the X-series of experimental hypersonic, supersonic aircraft using this boost glide technology where the X-aircraft would be taken up under the wings of large motherships and then dropped and they would ignite their engines and off they would go into the stratosphere. Then he was also in the Air Force's Dinosaur Astronaut Corps until he switched over to be a NASA astronaut in the 1960s. I do not believe the official NASA and Air Force timeline. I flat out don't. That dinosaur never flew and that the first astronauts went up in the early 1960s. But I believe that Neil Armstrong may have gone into space years before John Glenn. I do find it interesting that Neil Armstrong to this day will not give any interviews to anyone about his astronaut career. He just will not speak about what he saw and did as an astronaut. I suspect that he, Neil Armstrong, and many of the other astronauts are burdened with many secrets and that they live in fear of blurting them out. So they put up a public facade of stony silence. And this is certainly true of Neil Armstrong, interestingly. The man who worked closely with X-1 and X-15 and the dinosaur program and also the NASA programs, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and Skylab, and also the early space shuttle was Kenneth KleinConnect. Now, who was KleinConnect? Well, he was the brother of the man who at the time of the Apollo missions was the Grand Secretary General of the 33rd Degree Supreme Council of the Masonic Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction Temple on 16th Street in downtown Washington, D.C. What makes this interesting is not only Kenneth Klein connects close connection with the X-1 and X-15 programs under NACA and the dinosaur program under the Air Force and also all of the NASA manned space programs to this point, but that his brother held a very high position at a 33rd degree Supreme Council there in Washington, D.C., this temple had also a close connection with the manned space program, and a number of the early NASA astronauts were Masons, including Buzz Aldrin, who walked on the moon with Neil Armstrong. In fact, Buzz Aldrin took the flag of this 33rd-degree Masonic temple on 16th Street in Washington, D.C., to the moon with him and carried out a brief Masonic ceremony on the moon and returned this flag from the moon's surface to this 33rd-degree Masonic Scottish Rite Temple in Washington, D.C. Personally, in September of 1969, NASA brought in Farouk El-Baz 
to manage the manned lunar missions of the Apollo program. Now, who is Farouk El-Baz? Well, Farouk El-Baz is a Ph.D. Egyptian geologist who in the 1960s was brought over as a 20-something newly minted Ph.D. into the very highest levels of NASA, leapfrogging right over the heads of hundreds of senior American scientists and engineers to essentially manage the manned component of the missions on the moon's surface. At the time he was brought over from Egypt, he was working as a petroleum geologist in the Egyptian oil patch in the Gulf of Suez. Before that, he spent a year lecturing in geology in Germany, in Heidelberg. And from there, he went to the very top of the most sensitive American program there was as a 29-year-old non-American scientist without a background in space science or aerospace. Now, why? The plain implication is that his being Egyptian has everything to do with it. Many people who speculate that the Sumerians and the earliest Egyptians were, in fact, non-humans present and cohabiting on this planet? Well, you know, I can't say anything about that. I don't know if they were non-human, but I've been told informally by people who study these esoteric matters that the Sumerians and the Egyptians did have high technology many thousands of years ago, and our understanding of ancient history is seriously deficient. Farouk El-Baz, who was Egyptian, spent a year teaching in Germany just before coming to NASA. He essentially ran the manned component of the Apollo space program. What happened on the surface of the moon was essentially under Farouk El-Baz's thumb. I would note that in the 1950s and 60s, there was also a parallel Operation Paperclip in Egypt. Egyptian President Nasser brought hundreds of ex-Nazi rocketry experts to Egypt and set them up in factory number 333 in Heliopolis, just outside of Cairo to establish an Egyptian rocket program. And who was the director of Factory 333? None other than Eugen Sanger, the godfather, if you will, of modern aerospace boost glide rocket technology. His ideas and designs were the forerunner of the conceptual basis for the U.S. Air Force's dinosaur program. As you have just said that the Egyptians under Nazar had their own space program that was Project 333, the White Sands Proving Ground V-2 rocket research under Project Paperclip in New Mexico was Project 33. Do you have any idea why those two parallel programs would have 333 and 33? I don't know, but I would point out to you that there was only one factory in Egypt, and it was 333. And at White Sands, there was only one launch complex, and it was number 33. What they have in common is clearly the repetition of the number 33 and also the involvement of ex-Nazis. I would remind you that there's also the involvement of 33rd degree masonry in this project, mm -hmm. which traces its antecedents back to ancient Egypt, and there's also the involvement of Germans here, both in Egypt and also in the United States. So I can't explain it other than to say that, yes, you're quite right. There is a conspicuous repetition of the number 33 here. And my basic take on all of this is that the American Manned Space Program is just so very different from what the public has been led to believe. So you would support a bottom line that there has been the NASA very public one, which always is in budget disputes and various problems, 
but behind it there is another space program that is quite real and more advanced than what we're seeing publicly. Oh, sure. I assign a very high probability to that likelihood that there is a secret parallel space program using non-conventional, non-aerospace technologies. Bottom line for me is that my research has shown and the research of others that there is a great deal more to the space program than NASA and the United States military have told the American people and the world. In all likelihood, manned exploration started much earlier, discovered much more, and has more ancient roots by far than we have been told. And since the secret 1989 astronaut corps reported by the New York Times, numbered 32, and that the White Sands V2 launch factory was numbered 33, and that the 1960s Egyptian space program factory was 333, I have been researching the possible meanings of 33 to the Egyptian and American space programs and to Freemasonry, which has its roots in the huge stone constructions of ancient Samaria and Egypt. The 33rd degree is the highest publicly known degree in Freemasonry. 33 is a higher octave of 6, which has traditionally and in sacred geometry been the flower of life or creation. The number 33 signifies illumination and freedom from religious dogmas and superstitions to the Freemasons, and they also relate to the fact that the human backbone contains 33 vertebrae, with the cranium or the intellect being at the top. 33 is also equivalent to 32 around 1. If you look at the roof of the United Nations General Assembly, you will see a large circular light surrounded by 32 smaller lights. If you look at the United Nations symbol, you will see a circle divided up into 32 sections with the center being the 33rd. On the United Nations symbol, there are 13 leaves on the olive branch. The symbol for the Soviet Union has this feature as well, 32 rays emanating from the sun, with the sun being the 33rd at the center. 16 U.S. presidents are confirmed to have been Freemasons, and they include George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and Gerald Ford. The Freemason motto is also three Latin words, ordo ab chaos, order out of chaos. I find this research right now, Whitley, to be some of the most fascinating that I've ever done in my life, and I'm going to try to keep going. And Lin Linda, I think you are really onto something. And order out of chaos. If we think of that, we are increasingly facing administrations in the United States and governments all over the world which are concerned about increasing the amount of order and decreasing the amount of freedom, invading privacy in every way, all over the planet right now. It's absolutely true, and it makes uh, all of us wonder if there was 
at one point on this planet a different intelligence that had a higher order of refinement in its relationship to the underlying math. Wait a minute. What exactly do you mean by that? That's a very provocative statement. Meaning that if you accept what seems to have come out of so many uh, leaks uh, to me and to others that there has been some kind of non-human intelligence on this planet responsible for the genetic evolution of the planet, it then implies that it is that intelligence, especially in modern history of Samaria and Egypt, that would have been teaching, that would have been guiding, that would have been responsible for what was happening with the construction of ziggurats and the huge stone uh, pyramids. And if from there that refined intelligence is what the Freemasons were essentially linking to in the evolution of their history, today it all seems to be degenerating in which it is no longer order out of chaos. It seems as if chaos is trying to bury order, and it raises in my own mind what is the relationship of current earth surface life humanity to other intelligences that are clearly manipulating this planet. But the fact that there is so much deterioration, it makes me wonder who is in conflict out there that is manipulating humans on the surface with so much disorder and chaos. And what role do we play in it, a role that we are not allowed even to know about except to sort of find whispers and subtle rumors about here and there? (laughs) Yes, and uh, on the uh, side of, there's one other very important point. Gary McKinnon, that you started with, he stumbled into what may be the skeleton of a secret astronaut corps, exactly as the New York Times was reporting, but where he was was in military computers. It was not NASA. NASA's public. He was on the military side of things. And if he has stumbled on to something so sensitive, a secret space program. The one thing that Richard uh, Souter and Jim Mars and Richard Dolan and I have talked about in great depth is, if this is true, then there is a criminal aspect to all of this in 2007 when this planet is up against the wall environmentally and needing new energy that is not fossil fuel. And if our government and or any other government already has technologies that are not dependent on fossil fuels but are, in fact, lifting bodies using electromagnetic advanced propulsion systems, and they are keeping them secret while this planet is deteriorating, then criminal criminal. charges are there. Well, Linda, that's very true. And unfortunately, secrecy is power and governments are addicted to it, and they will keep on clinging to it even as they sink down into the morass of global catastrophe as the environment turns completely against us. And it's too bad, but that is exactly what will happen. Linda Moulton Howe, it's been great having you this week, as always, and I can hardly wait 
to see what your and hear what your research into this area turns up again in the future. Thanks very much for being with us, folks. Next week on Dreamland, Lucy Pringle on the stunning 2007 crop circle season. Where are the crop circles taking us? Don't miss it. This has been Whitley Strieber's Dreamland. We'll be back next week with another journey to the extreme edge. Don't miss a single week and tell your friends about our unique program. Our Dreamland crew is Evan Ross on sound, Dana Augustine on program art, Daniel Stegall, webmaster, and I'm your Dreamland announcer, Brian Arnold. Thank you very much for listening.